Today's Binge Moon is brought to you by Dell. The Dell XPS 13 with an Intel Core i7 processor. It's the laptop Mm. for people who never say no to one more episode. Like us. Like you. With lifelike color, brilliant sound clarity, and smooth streaming. Dell Cinnamon technology makes whatever you love to watch even better. Call 800 by dell to learn more or visit dell.com slash dellcinema. Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. That's right. If you've ever wondered what the erecto spell does, (laughs) it pitches a tent, literally pitches a tent. (laughs) Then we've got a great podcast for you. If that is not something you're interested in, casting erecto in the woods amongst the trees under the stars, please check out one of the other great podcasts on the Ringer Podcast Network. One more warning. Binge Mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why we're eating French onion soup while recording this podcast, Mm. please proceed Mm. with extreme caution. Now Binge Mode. Harry, you keep talking about what your wand did, said Hermione. But you made it happen. Why are you so determined not to take responsibility for your own power? Because I know it wasn't me, and so does Voldemort, Hermione. We both know what really happened. They glared at each other. Harry knew that he had not convinced Hermione and that she was marshalling counter-arguments against both his theory on his wand and the fact that he was permitting himself to see into Voldemort's mind. To his relief, Ron intervened. Drop it! He advised her. It's up to him. And if we're going to the Ministry tomorrow, don't you reckon we should go over the plan? Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. It's a great website. Joining me today, now that he's zipped past the flying chunks of vomit, flushed himself down the toilet, and zoomed through the fireplace, it's Ringer Senior Creative and your headmaster, James Concepcion. Mal, bloom and pain in the bum, this eh. At least we have binge mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether or not your blood status is in doubt, Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and view us. Five points, five stars. Binge mode. Yeah. Also, Twitter, Instagram, hit that follow button at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. Go ahead and join our Facebook group as well. Yeah. Which is just for binge mode fans, which is an excellent place to swap splinching horror stories. Really tough injury, that splinch. Also, feel free to head to theringer.com slash shop. Check out our new binge mode merch. Oh, man. Is it beautiful? Oof. Oh, They'll match well with your magical maintenance robes. Last time on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how trust shapes chapters 9 through 11 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters 12 through 14. Yes. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge as always. All those chapters are today's primary focus. We will be going deep. deep. On details from all seven books and eight films and the wider Potter canon, mm. taking the entire series into account from the moment we say farewell to Creature. Oh, tough one. So swipe some hair, swap your robes, because it's time 
to infiltrate the Ministry of Magic. Mal? Snape? Head producer? Snape in Isaac's study? Merlin's pants! I'll be back in a minute, at which point we can offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Hallows chapters 12 through 14 by climbing aboard this scarlet steam engine of plot the Hogwarts Express! Choo-choo. After a month of clandestine planning, it's time for some action! And Harry, Ron, and Hermione infiltrate the Ministry of Magic, which has transformed into a tyrannical muggle-hating authority. After a series of separations and hijinks and a rather satisfying attack on Umbridge, they pocket the locket and flee for the exit, only to be caught just as they're apparating toward Grimald Place by the Death Eater Yaxley. Hermione breaks free of his grip, but the damage Uh is done. And the trio can no longer return to the Black family home, their hideout, their sanctuary. Compounding these problems, Ron got splinched. Eesh. During the disapparation is left too weak to stand, let alone travel by magical means. Harry sees another vision through Voldemort's eyes, this time the Dark Lord killing Gorvich. But not before learning that a young boy stole something small from the wand maker long ago, leaving Harry even more confused about Voldemort's intentions. Does Gorvich get a phoenix squawk? Come on. We don't even know this guy. <laughs> Feels like just an important figure in the magical I world. I guess that's right. We could give him the sound of like a wand waving. A fitting exit. A fitting yeah. tribute. A wand waving and I guess not putting up security wards like on his <laughs> shop. <laughs> Mal, forcing us all to get to the studio this way. Who are they expecting to turn up? Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> and that gets us to this episode's Grande idea. <laughs> so let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapter 12 through 14 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows is a belly of the beast. Chapter 12. Magic is might. Time is passing. The August sun is crisping the grass in the Grimald Place Square and a string of daily visitors is staring unrelentingly at the spot at which numbers 11 and 13 connect, drawn by the missing number 12, drawn by notable but temporary disturbances in the air, drawn by the prospect of finding Harry Potter. The Death Eaters are waiting for any sign, watching for any movement. August turns to September, and with more scouts than ever standing sentinel, quote, there occurred one of those inexplicable moments when they appeared to have seen something interesting. As soon as this disturbance appears, it vanishes, and Dalahov and his companion resume their post. Quote, Meanwhile, inside number 12, Harry had just entered the hall. He had nearly lost his balance as he apparated onto the top step just outside the front door and thought that the Death Eaters might have caught a glimpse of his momentarily exposed elbow. This is the new rhythm of life for our friends. The three Ds they learned about during apparition lessons in Prince, now a life raft. The precise execution of destination, determination, and deliberation allowing them to exist on the razor's edge between detection and seclusion. Their hideout, their current home, continues to shield them. But they're caged divers in a shark-infested waters. Shielded, but surrounded on all sides. One slip, and it's over their protection teetering on a toe on a step. Every glance out the window, a reminder of how fragile it is. Having recovered from his near slip and having safely entered 12 Grimald, 
Harry announces his return with an ominous greeting. I've got news and you won't like it. He enters the now spotless kitchen, restored to a glittering, bustling state by creature who's as unrecognizable as the room. He's wearing a fresh towel. His ear hair is snowy white. So fluffy. (laughs) And he's sporting Regulus's locket proudly on his bony chest. He greets our boy as Master Harry and directs him to wash his hands and remove his shoes. It's time, you see, for the dinner that creature has so lovingly prepared. French onion. Mm. Smells great. Tastes great. Is great. Ron and Hermione are in there, pouring over notes and maps as Harry tosses his paper onto their workstation and carries the headline. Severus Snape confirmed as Hogwarts headmaster, and to their collective horror, they learn that his appointment is just one of many. The Karos, Death Eaters who were atop the tower the night Dumbledore died, are now teaching Muggle Studies, that's Electo, and Defense, Amicus. Ron says that the other teachers, the ones who know the truth of Dumbledore's death, won't allow this. But McGonagall, Flitwick, and Sprout and Slughorn now find themselves in the Viper's Pit. If they challenge Snape's regime, Harry reasons, they'll risk a stint in Azkaban. If they stay, they can try to protect the students putting on airs with Voldemort's minions while working to subvert their authority. Harry spooning creatures divine French onion soup into his mouth notes that at least now they know where Snape is. And as Ron observes in turn, it's where they're not, Hogwarts. It's September 1st. The Hogwarts Express left six hours ago. And Harry, Ron, and Hermione weren't on it. As staunch as they all were in their commitment to the plan, there's something about this that crystallizes the reality of their choice in a way that nothing else, even life on the run in a hideout, has. Hermione, who ran off upon hearing of Snape's appointment, returns with Phineas Nigelus's portrait, which she stores in her magically expanded bag. Brilliantly, she recalled that Phineas's other portrait resides in the headmaster's office at Hogwarts, meaning the portrait's occupant could spy on them at Grimmauld Place and pass intel to Snape. And this will occur later in a fashion when they're out on the run, as Phineas hears Hermione name their location of the moment, the Forest of Dean, allowing Snape and his doe Patronus to show up there and guide Harry to the Sword of Gryffindor. Phineas's true role, like Snape's, will not become clear to Harry until the prince's tale. So with Phineas safely stored away here, they begin to catch each other and us up. Harry, we learn, has just returned from watching the ministry entrance for seven hours. He did not spot Umbridge, but he saw Arthur, whom they've agreed they cannot risk trying to contact, but they feel reassured just getting to glimpse him. It's another sad moment. We realize, thanks to a spat between Ron and Hermione about Ron's failure to disclose that navy blue robes signal employee in the magical maintenance department, that Harry's daily trip was not the first scouting mission. They've been doing this for some time. The parchment piles on the table are full of notes and plans, plans to infiltrate the Ministry of Magic. Now, of course, our friends have done this before, entering the Department of Mysteries in the dead of night to try to rescue Sirius. But this is different. This time, they're planning not rushing in. And this time, that planning is aimed not at avoiding people, but at entering in the light of day, with the throngs all around them and the chance of detection as high as ever. This time, the whole goal is to find a ministry official, Dolores Umbridge. Ron's whiff on the blue robes might seem small, but it sends Hermione into a tizzy for that very reason. They're not skirting around in the dark this time. They're knocking on the whale's mouth and asking it to open up. Mm. Quote, you do realize, don't you, Hermione says, after lecturing Ron on the importance of passing along every single shred of information gleaned on these reconnaissance trips, something he knows from the past, anything. 
quote, that there's probably no more dangerous place in the whole world for us to be right now than the ministry. Umbridge would be dangerous enough on her own, as would entering a high-profile location while on the run from Voldemort. But doing so now that Voldemort has taken control of that location is impossibly risky, almost suicidal. Some of the most highly skilled and dangerous witches and wizards in Magical Britain reside in that building. Many are working for Voldemort, either because, like Yaxley, they want to, or because, like the thickness, they're being controlled. Many others, like Umbridge, have long been part of a toxic regime, festering along with the government's rotting carcass, actively working against Harry, or passively allowing him to be smeared, used, and smeared again. And others still are hoping for good to prevail, but are too afraid to fight for it, knowing that they too must walk each morning into the fire, hoping to escape the oppression of the flames. The Arthurs and Kingsleys of the world are a tragically small minority, and even they must hide their true intentions, blending into the fabric of corruption so as to remain free and operative. It is, in other words, as dangerous as anything short of trying to rob Gringotts, which they will do, or trying to find Voldemort's Horcruxes, which they will do, or trying to enter Hogwarts once Voldemort is known to be mounting a castle offensive, which they will do. So naturally, Harry doesn't want to wait. I think we should do it tomorrow, he says as Hermione's jaw drops to the floor and Ron chokes on his delicious soup. You aren't serious, Harry, Hermione asks. Our girl is a planner, of course, a methodical thinker, a deliberate witch who's allergic to acting rashly and thus has kept Harry. My middle name is Rash, but not in a gross way. Potter alive more times than we can count. The idea of moving prematurely, of acting willfully, recklessly, by choosing to act prematurely is anathema to her. But Harry is different. They're yin and yang, a pulley system of checks and balances, and it's his turn to pull. There's not much more they can learn from scouting, he says, and the longer they wait, the further away the locket could be. Having yet to spot Umbridge, they've yet to be able to confirm that the locket's on her. Plus, he points out, they know the big stop. It's no longer possible to apparate into and out of the ministry. Only the most senior ministry officials can use the flu network. Non-senior officials need, quote, funny coins to enter. Umbridge's office is on level one. I don't know, Harry. I don't know. There are an awful lot of things that could go wrong. So much relies on chance, Hermione says. That'll be true even if we spend another three months preparing, says Harry. It's time to act. Consider the nature of this tact from Harry. He's not pretending that things will be low risk and manageable. He's noting that they just will never be. They left safe and easy behind a long time ago. This is a different kind of Harry than the reckless Harry. Harry can see that his closest friends are afraid, and he's not, quote, particularly confident himself. But after four weeks of taking turns under the invisibility cloak, spying on the official ministry entrance, soaking up whatever information they could, swiping daily profits from passing briefcases, amassing the maps and notes now stretched before them, learning which employees appear alone at what time each day, he's as confident as he's going to get. Ron pipes up to say that if they go, it should just be him and Harry. He's extremely worried about Hermione, in particular entering the ministry, given the anti-Muggleborn measures they learned from Lupin. The ministry, thanks to Voldemort's puppeteering, has made Harry a wanted man linked to Dumbledore's murder. Ron and Hermione were always at risk, just from being his friends. But for now, at least, it seems that Ron's spattergroid cover is holding. Hermione's in more peril, both because her cover hasn't been tested the way Ron's has and because she's muggle-born, walking into a den of bigots who are specifically targeting people like Hermione and looking to rob them of their wands, their magic, and their identity, is incalculably risky, particularly after Hermione's name appeared on the list of muggle-borns who did not report for interrogation. 
She's about to go infiltrate a building full of people who are looking for her and looking to rob her of her essence should they find her. But while Hermione may not be keen on the idea of rushing in tomorrow, she's less keen on the idea of not going at all. The one who shouldn't go, she says, is Harry, who has a 10,000 galleon price on his head. Fine, I'll stay here, Harry says. Let me know if you ever defeat Voldemort, won't you? What a flex by my guy. <laughs> Calm down. I love it. I honestly <laughs> love it. Oh, okay, so who's going to take Voldemort? You, Hermione? Ron? You got him? It's great. I love what it. A, love when Harry tries to What a, a flex. Dumbledore-esque flex. I know. Harry's scar sears right after this flex, and his creature asks after his contentment, Master has not finished his soup. Would Master prefer the savory stew? or else the trickle tart, to which Master is so partial. Harry excuses himself to the bathroom, where the vision overcomes him, and he sees himself gliding down a street lined with gingerbread-like houses. Delicious. He knocks with a long-fingered hand. Nice manners here from Voldemort, by the way. I thought, thought to knock. I thought that strange as well. Also, <laughs> like, get a peephole. Yeah. Can we make sure who it is before opening the door? <laughs> the woman who answers the door again without looking <laughs> melts from laughter to fear in the span of one glance Grigorovich Voldemort says I want Grigorovich panickingly trying to escape from him she shouts in German and then in English that he no longer lives there that she knows him not and then Voldemort pushes his way into the home drawing his wand. And as he asks where the wand maker is and the woman says that he moved, she does not know. Voldemort raises his wand and there is a flash of green light as Harry hears someone scream his name. It's Hermione with Ron right behind her. And Harry realizes that he shouted out in real life. When he briefly flails at trying to cover, Hermione tells him not to insult their intelligence. And he relents, confessing what he saw. It was Cedric all over again, he says of the needless murder. They were just there. This is life under Voldemort. Should he be allowed to prevail, every moment, everywhere would be like walking into the belly of the beast. There would be no safe harbor, no true reprieve from the fear and the danger. And when Hermione issues her standard pitch to black out Voldemort, to honor Dumbledore's occlumency plea, Harry owns up to the same impulse that claimed him in order. If he lets it happen, if he lets the connection open and take hold, he'll know what Voldemort's up to. I don't like it much, he told Snape in his fifth year, but it's been useful, hasn't it? The stakes are undeniably higher now than they were then, and so in turn are the potential gains. As we'll see across the story, as this portal provides Harry with crucial intel about the Elder Wand and Grindelwald and the location of what Harry and Voldemort think is the final Horcrux and more. And if the stakes and potential gains are higher, then so too are the risks. And those risks are what Hermione is focusing on when she says, I don't get it, Harry. Do you like having this special connection or relationship or whatever? And she falters at the look on his face when she says this. And a brief but painful back and forth ensues in which Harry, deeply wounded by this question, says, I hate it. I hate the fact that he can get inside me, that I have to watch him when he's most dangerous, but I'm going to use it. Recall how in Order of the Phoenix, before he understood it, this connection terrified Harry, made him feel dirty, polluted, corrupted. His enhanced, though still not complete, understanding of the magic behind this connection hasn't changed that particular fact. He still feels tainted by Voldemort's ability to get into his head, contaminated by the fact that his own mind, a place that should be a sanctuary, a space free of others, is a gateway into the foul fortress of Voldemort's mind. The demons aren't just inside the walls. There are no walls. There is no refuge. That would undo most of us. 
At times, it's come close to undoing Harry. And here, all he can try to do is turn that potential pitfall and weakness into a strength, turn something that was used to wound him so deeply into a tool that he can now wield against others. Forget Dumbledore, he says. This is my choice, nobody else's. I want to know why he's after Grigorovich. And this is such a fascinating sentiment, such a fascinating sentence. Harry is holding up the ideals that Dumbledore passed down to him. Choice above all, the courage of your convictions. But he's doing so in order to deliberately cast Dumbledore's counsel aside in a way that he really never has before. Dumbledore can't get Harry back through the closing jaws this time. Harry knows that he must do it on his own and learn as much as he can on the way. Harry's mention of Grigorovich here spawns a brief discussion of why Voldemort would be after him when he already has Ollivander in prison. Maybe he, like Crumb, thinks Grigorovich's work is the best, Harry says. Or maybe Voldemort, after an explanation for why Harry's wand behaved the way it did when it saved him in the air, he adds, quote, because Ollivander didn't know. Hermione and Ron again push back against this notion. And here we get a whiff of the maddening refusal to believe Harry that defines so much of the early Harry's obsessed with Draco plot and Prince. Harry knows that he's right. He saw what happened with his wand. He saw Voldemort asking Ollivander about it in his vision. It isn't even supposition at this point. It's a fact that Voldemort, like Harry, was stunned by what occurred and has been looking for answers. It's understandable that Ron and Hermione, who've never seen this kind of magic, would doubt this on some logical, academic, rational level. As we'll learn from Dumbledore and King's Cross, the effect is astonishingly rare, so specific to the connection between Voldemort and Harry and the way they've, as Dumbledore will say, quote, journeyed together into realms of magic hitherto unknown and untested. But as Harry's friends, friends who've seen the tragedy that ensues from downing him, friends who've seen how recklessly he'll charge into the abyss when he thinks he has no choice, they should know that when Harry feels doubted, he's more likely, not less, to plow ahead into the lion's den. This is a central, crucial tension, as we've discussed so often before. One of the greatest gifts Harry's friends, particularly Hermione, gives him is pushing him, challenging him, forcing him to think through his actions and his suppositions. It's one of the key differences that allows Harry to look inward, question and improve in the way that Voldemort never does and would never want to. What's more, when Hermione says, Harry, you keep talking about what your wand did, but you made it happen. Why are you so determined not to take responsibility for your own power? She's speaking not with judgment, but with love and affection, a desperate desire not only to prop up his confidence, but to keep him safe. And yet he needs their trust, needs their support, needs their help to figure out this problem, not to doubt that it exists. Otherwise, he'll dive into the Sarlacc pit alone, and this time the pit also happens to be in his own mind. I know it wasn't me, he says, and so does Voldemort, Hermione. We both know what really happened, and he's right. But the mission awaits, and so it's time to prep. They spend hours going over the plan, and then Harry lies awake alone in Sirius's former room where he's been sleeping, his lit wand pointing at the photo of the marauders on the wall. Lovely little moment there. Quote, dawn seemed to follow midnight with indecent haste. It's go time. Hermione's methodically running down every item in her bag, ensuring that they have whatever they'll need. And a good thing, too, because as we will soon see, they will not be able to return to Grimald Place. They eat the breakfast the creature has prepared and leave to his promise to have a steak and kidney pie waiting for them when they return. Mm. A promise that will tear at Harry and readers alike when our friends are unable to return to fulfill their side of it. They apparate away and await under the cloak their first mark in a deserted alleyway. And a minute later, the ministry witch they've been tracking appears and blinks in the sun for a fraction of a second before they stun her. Tough look here for our pals, who <laughs> then scoop up her body yes, and her. store her in, quote, the dark passageway. 
Wow. Hermione is a savage in these scenes. Yeah. She is like freaking ruthless. One, it's like the tiny details, <laughs> but like no one's there to catch her. It's, they don't soften her fall. She just topples over. She is, particularly this next part here, she is freaking ruthless. Eat this! <laughs> Hermione steals some of the woman's hair, adds the hairs to her polyjuice flask. This is who she'll be impersonating. Quote, she's Mafalda Hopkirk, Ron says, and readers surely recognize this name. She is the sender of the misuse of magic notices that Harry gets from the Ministry and Chamber of Secrets and Order of the Phoenix. Thanks, Dobby. But no one recognizes the name here, despite the improper use of magic office label on her card. After Hermione sips her brew and transforms, they move to their next mark, with Harry and Ron under the cloak, Hermione out in plain view. And the homie for magical maintenance arrives and greets the awaiting Mafalda, a.k.a. Hermione. And when she asks how he is, he says, not so good, actually. And we'll soon learn the reason. But there's no time for inquiries or small talk here. And so Hermione meets this extremely bleak pronouncement with the offer of a suite. Quote, it was essential to stop him from reaching the street. She then insists that he take one. And when he does, quote, the effect was instantaneous. It's a puking pastille. And he begins to vomit so profusely that he doesn't even notice Hermione swiping some of his hairs. This, we realize, is the plan. Use the guiding snack box treats to turn him so ill he has to go to St. Mungo's and impersonate him while he's gone. Seems even worse than stunning, I gotta say. If you gave me those two choices, I'd say stun me and store me in the dark passageway. Someone else can do the vomiting sweets. Seems particularly bad once we consider his pleas. As Hermione tries to get him to go to the healers, he sputters, no, no, I must today, must go. This is really horrible. Eventually, he concedes, and he is literally unable to stop vomiting, so he has no choice. Quote, this is actually very funny. <laughs> Using a repulsed Hermione to claw his way back into a standing position, he turned on the spot and vanished, leaving nothing behind but the bag Ron had snatched from his hand as he went and some flying chunks of vomit. <laughs> Quite a legacy for Reg. Ron then pulls out the navy blue robes and observes how odd it is that the man who we learn here is named Reg Catermole wasn't wearing them given how keen he was to get to his job today. We will soon learn why. The transformed Ron and Hermione go to find a subject for Harry while he waits in, quote, the sick splattered alleyway. Very tough. Harry, my guy, can we vanish this stuff or why are we going to? Why is he not vanishing it? I think because he's just like, oh, I'm used to being around this kind of mess. <laughs> well, I don't all the get time. it. Clean up. After 10 minutes, they reappear with hairs. We don't know who he is, they say, but he's gone home with a dreadful nosebleed. Already, this is enough to make us nervous. After four weeks of prep, we realize they were only able to ID two people to impersonate, and they didn't even know who they were. Yeah. The third, they had to find on the fly. They don't know who these people are or what awaits them inside. It's terrifying, a real indicator of how much on-the-ground reactionary thinking they'll have to do, even after all the initial legwork. Mm -hmm. Harry transforms into the tall, quote, powerfully built man with a beard, and our three friends each take an MOM token and proceed to the bathrooms where they use the coins to enter the stalls. Blooming pain in the bum, this, huh? Forcing us all to get to work this way. Who are they expecting to turn up? Harry Potter, says one of the people in line. Harry steps into the stall, and then after hearing flushing on both sides and stolen glances that show him lifting feet, goes into the toilet itself. Though he appears to be standing in toilet water, his feet remain dry, and when he flushes, he zooms down a chute into the ministry, where he sees 
not the golden fountain. This is an incredible passage of toilet stuff that ends with golden fountain. (laughs) (laughs) Not the golden fountain that once came to life in the duel between Dumbledore and Voldemort, but now there's a giant black stone statue in its place. It was rather frightening, Harry thinks, as he notices the engraved words below the vast mass. Magic is might. Harry's so transfixed by this sight that he's welded to the ground, and the next wizard through the chute slides into him. Out of the way, can't you? Oh, sorry, Runcorn. And Harry can tell by this reaction that he's impersonating someone with a little juice, someone intimidating. Not all of the context clues will be so beneficial. Our three friends find each other, and Hermione speaks to what still clearly has Harry's attention, the statue. It's horrible, isn't it, she says. Have you seen what they're sitting on? And Harry takes a closer look at what he initially thought were intricately carved thrones. And he realizes what they actually are. Quote, mounds of carved humans, hundreds and hundreds of naked bodies, men, women, and children, all with rather stupid, ugly faces twisted and pressed together to support the weight of the handsomely robed wizards. Muggles, whispered Hermione, in their rightful place. Horrifying. Now, the statue of magical brethren that stood here before was, as Dumbledore noted to Harry, a lie, conveying false harmony between races of magical beings, an adoration of witches and wizards by their fellow magical creatures that did not reflect how those creatures actually felt. But this is a different kind of horror, a lie exchanged for a truth so plainly stated that it's unashamed of its own hideousness. It glorifies in it. This is what Voldemort and those who fight for him want. This is what those who refuse to fight against him allow. And this is the oppressive force into which Harry, Ron, and Hermione have just willingly entered. Disgusted by this sight, they make their way toward the lifts, at which point they hear a voice shout, Catermole, and turn to see a sight that sends Harry's stomach tumbling. Yaxley, one of the Death Eaters who witnessed Dumbledore's death, and whom readers watch plot Harry's destruction in this book's opening chapter, is speaking to the man that Ron is impersonating. They can feel the fear rippling through the ministry workers surrounding them. A reminder, again, that not everyone in that building is a willing participant in what's unfolding, but also that not everyone is willing to fight it. Yaxley speaks to Ron about his office, where it's raining, and Ron, a.k.a. Reg, works in magical maintenance, which means it's on him to fix this. And then in response to Ron's, that's not good, is it? And ensuing nervous laughter, Yaxley chills the assembled. Quote, you realize that I'm on my way downstairs to interrogate your wife? Catermull. In fact, I'm quite surprised you're not down there holding her hand while she waits. Already given her up is a bad job, have you? Probably wise. Be sure and marry a pure blood next time. This is why Reg was so eager to get to work this morning when Hermione stopped him. This is why he wasn't in his usual work robes. His wife's blood status is in doubt, and today is her interrogation. This is a truly terrible moment yes. when we look evil in the eye and see all the many forms that it can take. And also, when we realize what our friends have done, we have discussed before the inherent violation at play in using Polyjuice Potion without Mm -hmm. the permission of the person you're turning into. But here there's an added wrinkle. Harry, Ron, and Hermione are by definition involving these strangers in their plan, bringing Mafalda, Reg, and Runcorn into the belly of the beast with them. Now, our trio doesn't know what troubles await their three marks, nor what sides they're on, but they're taking them into the ruse with them regardless and against their will. This is what the beast demands, but also what the beast costs. And Ron is understandably 
terrified by what has just transpired. Yaxley just threatened him by saying, quote, if my office is not completely dry within an hour, your wife's blood status will be an even graver doubt than it is now. This person's life is in his hands. They enter a lift alone. Quote, it was as if they were infectious after the exchange with Yaxley. And Harry offers to go with him, but Ron wisely notes they don't have time for this. Harry, Hermione have to go try to find Umbridge while Ron tries to stop the rain. And Hermione gives him some tips, and Ron, preciously, the stress clearly eating away at him, says, say it again, slowly. (laughs) I just love that moment so much. But then more people enter the lift, including one who begins speaking lovingly and longingly to Albert, a.k.a. Harry, of misery befalling another ministry employee, Dirk Cresswell. One more clue here, that Harry is not impersonating a nice guy. Yep. They reach level two, and Hermione pushes Ron out, but is immediately filled with regret. And just as she's telling Harry, using his name, by the way, <laughs> come on, Hermione, that she thinks she better go back and help Ron, the gates open at level one, and Hermione gasps. Four people are standing there, including a toad-like witch with a telltale bow on her head. Ba ba ba! Chilling moment, it really is! It really is a good one. Chapter 13, the Muggle-Born Registration Commission, and there she is in all her nightmarish pink glory. Dolores Umbridge, alongside the new Minister of Magic, the imperialist Pius Thickness. As the defense against the dark arts professor in Harry's fifth year, Umbridge was fighting against the tide. For Umbridge, Hogwarts was her belly of the beast. Though unlike our three friends right now, she was stupendously dismissive of the danger she faced. Her mission, given to her by the wondrously inept Cornfudge, was to spy on Dumbledore and dumb down and defang the defense against the dark arts curriculum. This was opposed at every turn, directly and indirectly, by the headmaster himself and the staff, save Filch, by nearly the entire student body, save for Draco and his crowd, by the centaurs of the dark forest, and by the school's entrenched culture of learning. She retained her ministry job, and this is the most damning indictment of Scrimgeour's leadership, after her dramatic fall from grace. Rather than having to alter an institution from within, Umbridge has merely had to sit tight as the ministry corrupted around her. Now fear rules the day, and the only rule is the rule of power. In other words, Umbridge, a sycophant through and through, is in her element, and it comes as no surprise at all to learn here that Umbridge is deeply involved in using the investigative powers of the ministry to root out Muggleborns. Using power against others is just what she loves to do. And she's on her way to do just that as the elevator doors slide open. Ah, oh, Mathalda, <laughs> said Umbridge, looking at Hermione. Trevor sent you, did he? <laughs> yes, squeaked Hermione. Hermione, as we learned last chapter, is disguised as a witch who works in the improper use of magic office. And so Umbridge assumes she's been sent for today's hearings, finding nothing odd as she plans to put Mafalda to work, taking notes on the blood trials she's presiding over. Umbridge gets on the lift next to Hermione and fixes her gaze on Harry. Good morning, Albert. Aren't you getting out? Yes, of course, <laughs> said Harry in Runcorn's deep voice. Hermione will have to head down with Umbridge absent Ron or Harry, and Harry now finds himself alone with the thickness. And it's a tense moment. Harry, of course, is at his best at the point of danger, thinking on his feet. But when the minister asks him as Runcorn what brings him up here, Harry nearly steps in it. Needed a quick word with Harry hesitated for a fraction of a second. Arthur Weasley. Someone said he was up on level one. Ah, said Pius. Has he been caught having contact with an undesirable? Harry's throat goes dry. Not only do they know who they are, what their jobs are, what others think of them, what they don't by extension, know what powers their words hold. Harry is clearly not only someone to be feared, but someone of consequence. He recovers, saying, no, nothing like that. To which the minister says that it's only a matter of time and that, quote, 
blood traitors are as bad as mudbloods. The order members and anyone connected with them know they're under surveillance, but here we get a terrifying glimpse into what that actually looks like. As soon as the thick nest leaves and Harry is alone, he puts on his cloak, needing to stoop to keep his feet hidden due to Runcorn's height. He goes off, gripped by fear. As Harry passes, quote, gleaming wooden door after gleaming wooden door, each bearing a small plaque with the owner's name and occupation upon it, the might of the ministry, its complexity, its impenetrability, seemed to force itself upon him. Suddenly, with Harry embedded deep and alone in this labyrinth, the plan that he, Ron, and Hermione forged to infiltrate the ministry with all its power and bureaucracy, with its untold number of employees and massive resources, with its many foes, literally so close they might be waiting there when the elevator door opens, suddenly seems unbelievably idealistic, quote, laughably childish. Getting in, it turns out, was the easy part. The problem is that's what they spent a month planning for. Quote, they had not given a moment's thought <laughs> to what they would do if they were forced to separate. Our friends probably figured that, hey, once in, they'd rely on each other as they always have. There's actually something really sweet about it, this. It really is. As they always have, right? Deriving strength and courage from their union, from their teamwork. Harry, there to provide the bravery. Hermione, there to provide the intellect, the wit. And Ron, the... The uh, emotional support? Yeah, it's for humor? sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, that is actually important. Yeah. It's yes. like lower yeah. the temperature a little bit it's when things get crucial. Down. Yes. Now, separated, their plan and their prospects for survival hang by a thread. How many hours until they're together again? Yeah. How much polyjuice do they have? What if the people they're impersonating heal up and come back before the mission's over? We will see that this happens in one case. What if a wife's blood status case is compromised in the process? Harry is worried, as they all are. But all he can do is press on, and so he decides, realizing, based on where he saw on bridge, what floor they're on, that her office must be here, and to go search it, to rule out the locket being in there. And he comes across a bullpen-style office. They're moving squares of paper to and fro, in the air with their wands, and Harry looks closer and realizes they are assembling pamphlets titled, Mudbloods, and the dangers they pose to a peaceful, pure-blood society, mm. printed across a pink cover sheet. Clearly, Umbridge's handiwork. Quote, will the old hag be interrogating mudbloods all day? Does anyone know? One of the witches says. A colleague warns her to be careful. More proof that not everyone at the ministry agrees with the government's new direction. Though that person said mudblood, so. Yeah, that's right. Yikes. But unaccompanied by a will to fight back to do something in the face of clear injustice, such comments, the good parts of them, are cold comfort. Quote, what has she got? Magic ears as well as an eye now, the witch says, and Harry follows her gaze to a particular door, quote, and rage reared in him like a snake. Just even half sentences have Horcrux clues. It's incredible. Where there might have been a peephole and a muggle front door, a large round eye with a bright blue iris had been set into the wood. Alistair Moody's eye. The plaque on the door reads Dolores Umbridge, Senior Undersecretary to the Minister, Head of the Muggleborn Registration Commission. Harry pulls out a decoy detonator, kind of walking prank bomb from the Weasley's Wizard Weezes shop, and sends it waddling past the pamphleteers. It detonates, giving Harry the cover he needs to slip inside Umbridge's office, inside the belly of the beast. Umbridge's taste in interior decorating is much the same as it was when she was teaching at Hogwarts. Lots of kittens and flowers and pink. Umbridge has set up Mad-Eye's eye as a kind of nanny cam to spy on the workers outside. It's perverse. A piece of Moody 
a tireless warrior for good used as a trophy and a tool for petty oppression. And Harry is sickened by this. After checking to make sure that the workers outside are still preoccupied by the decoy, he pulls Moody's eye out of the door, placing it in his pocket. He doesn't consider what effect this will have. That a bastardization so notable and foul that he just overheard the workers speaking of it will surely not go unnoticed when removed. But he can't abide this disgrace. And remember, the order never found Moody's body. This is all that's left. The possibility that his eye being here rays are too distressing to even contemplate. This is one small thing that Harry can do. One real way that he can help a friend, even if doing so is unwise. After seizing the eye, he searches the office. He tries Akio Locket. Nothing. Okay, time to search manually. He rifles through her desk and then a filing cabinet. And in the last drawer, he finds Arthur Weasley's surveillance file. Not a completely unexpected find, surely, but bracing nonetheless. It reads, in part, pure blood, but with unacceptable pro-muggle leanings, known member of the Order of the Phoenix. It notes that Molly is a pure blood. It lists how many children they have, seven, and that two of those are at Hogwarts. And it confirms that Ron's Gulrus has done its work well. Under security status, it says tracked. All movements are being monitored. Strong likelihood, undesirable number one will contact. Has stayed with the Weasley family previously. Again, Harry and the Weasleys and the rest of the order know this. They know they're being tracked. It's why Arthur sent his Patronus telling them not to attempt to communicate. It's what Lupin's visit confirmed. But holding hard proof of the ministry's new direction has to be chilling, particularly for contemplating Arthur's safety. Someone like Lupin is on their watch list, yes. But he doesn't have to go into the ministry every day. Arthur does. So do fellow ministry workers every day into the belly of the beast, knowing the beast is watching them back. Shouts to the ghoul, by the way. Just doing Ron, his part. Spectacularly. That is Ron's triumph. This is a masterstroke by Ron Weasley, I think. Well, he spent me. a lot of time thinking about the moaning sounds while masterstroking. So, yeah. <laughs> Hello. But what about this undesirable number one code, eh? Harry whispers the label to himself, and he knows instantly, yes, intuitively. That's me. <laughs> Come on, who else would it be, right? He looks up and sees his suspicion confirmed in the form of a wanted poster of himself on Umbridge's wall. Undesirable, number one, printed across his chest. And a pink post-it reading, to be punished, what a w- stuck to I it. I don't think we talk enough about what a fucking weirdo Umbridge is. So she yes, is she, into some She is evil, yes. Shit. She is bad, yes. She is a power-hungry sycophant, yes. She is also profound. Profoundly weird. Deeply disturbed. She is a weirdo. Deeply disturbed. Enraged now, Harry Sarge grows desperate. The locket slipping through his hands is maddening, but the locket falling into the hands of this dangerous lunatic, it's an almost existential crisis for Harry. He must find it. He must fix this. He must beat Umbridge, but still, nothing. And then, on a bookshelf near the desk, he sees Dumbledore staring out of what he initially thinks is a rectangular mirror. First time you read that, that moment of shock is like, whew. He runs and sees that it's actually an early copy of Rita Skeeter's soon-to-be bestseller, The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore, including a tout for her prior tome, Armando Dippet, Master or Moron. (laughs) I I would read that. I gotta say, again, (laughs) incredible head writing by, by the Skeeter. Everything... She titles, I'm like, you know what? You're terrible, but I would read this. Uh, Same. (laughs) (laughs) Harry opens the book about the mentor that he so deeply loved and has come in recent weeks to so deeply doubt and instantly opens to a page featuring a full page photo of a young Dumbledore with a blonde boy who we will eventually learn is the young Gellert Grindelwald. It is chilling to read this description now in light of all 
that we've since learned about Grindelwald's goals, about the boys' relationship, about Dumbledore's choices and regrets. Quote, two teenage boys both laughing immoderately with their arms around each other's shoulders. The other boy is described as having, quote, a gleeful, wild look about him. And Harry wonders if it's Doge, but before he can check the caption, the door of Umbridge's office opens. It's the thickness. And Harry catches a lucky break. The imperious minister is preoccupied, looking over his shoulder where the decoy detonator scene is still playing out, giving Harry the second that he needs to slip the cloak over himself. Thickness might not be as thick as his name suggests, because imperious though he may be, he stands stark still for a moment, staring into the office. And Harry's pretty sure he caught a glimpse. But once again, Harry's able to escape. As the minister decides ultimately that nothing is amiss, he walks to the desk and fires off a memo to Umbridge, granting the now invisible Harry the opportunity to slip out. Empty-handed in terms of the locket, carrying the eyeball, but thankfully undiscovered, he makes for the elevators. Harry's thinking fast now. The priority, he realizes, needs to be to get out undetected and alive. They can strategize another locket hunting tactic later. They need to move. But first, they have to reunite. They have to find each other. Luckily, Harry's lucky streak continues. First, the lift is empty when it arrives, allowing Harry to decloak. And when it stops one floor down, who should get on but Ron? Soaking wet after his defeat at the hands of the downpour in Yaxley's office. And so downtrodden, he doesn't recognize Harry's runcorn. Ron, it's me, Harry. Harry, blind me, I forgot what you look like. Why isn't Hermione with you? She had to go down to the courtrooms with Umbridge. She couldn't refuse. And, and then the doors open again and Arthur Weasley steps on. Our focus is necessarily tightened around Harry, Ron, and Hermione here. But as we've discussed, Arthur enters the belly of the beast daily, knowing full well that his every move is being watched and that the ministry would need little to no pretense to scoop him up and throw him in Azkaban. Showing up for work every day takes tremendous courage. But Arthur's doing much more than that. After a brief conversation with his son, and here Harry observes that Ron is scared that his father might recognize him if they look directly into each other's eyes. Love that An oddly uh, touching sentiment that extends beyond this scene and across the series with eyes acting as portals to the soul. It's great. In which Arthur dispenses rain cessation advice to Reg, and Reg Ron darts off to fix the problem. Harry's blocked from getting off the lift, too, by Percy's entrance. Fucking Percy. So much for being together again. After Percy exits, radish red, Arthur stops Harry again. One moment, Runcorn, Mr. Weasley says as the door is closed and the elevator descends. I hear you laid information about Dirk Cresswell. Harry can tell that Arthur is incensed. So he plays dumb, which leads to this heroic rejoinder from Mr. Weasley. Dirk Cresswell is ten times the wizard you are, said Mr. Weasley quietly as the lift sank ever lower. And if he survives Azkaban, you'll have to answer to him, not to mention his wife, his sons, and his friends. Harry is awed by Arthur's righteous rage, but also concerned, ironically. This is an ironic flip here, that Mr. Weasley is being unduly reckless, not keeping his head down when the ministry and the Death Eaters are looking to lop it off. And he tries to warn Arthur off. You know you're being tracked, don't you? And Arthur takes this as a threat, given that he receives it from Runcorn, not Harry. When the doors open again, he shoots Harry slash run corny, quote, scathing look, a look of such withering power that Harry actually wishes he was disguised as someone else. And then Arthur stalks off. Bravo, Arthur Weasley. Arthur Weasley is a fucking man. He's a hero. He is a full-grown man in this scene. The bravery every day. Every day to go in there and not just, like, keep your mouth shut and do your job, but to actually be like, you wait until this shit flips, and then you're going to have a problem, run corn. I mean, it's, It's it's really amazing. He's an inspiration. Also, just quite a look for Dirk Cresswell. (laughs) (laughs) 
No, not for long. More on him in the seven. <laughs> Harry shakes off the effects of Arthur's death stare and pulls the cloak over himself again so as not to have to engage with anyone else as Runcorn. That's how unpleasant that He's exchange is. He's like, man, was. I hate being this guy. And sets off to spring Hermione from the court chambers alone, now that Ron is apart from him again. He's been down here before, remember, in Dumbledore's pensive memories in Goblet of Fire for his own underage magic trial chaired by the full Wizengamot at the beginning of Order of the Phoenix. In his dreams, night after night, as he ran toward the black door at the end of the corridor, and of course, for his attempted rescue of Sirius, which became the battle of the Department of Mysteries. He shivers in recognition and memory and then heads for the trial room deep in thought. How is he going to get Hermione out of there? Use a decoy detonator? Try and bluff his way into the courtroom as Runcorn, then ask Hermione for a word? What happens when she doesn't come back? Suddenly, Harry's aware of how cold it's become, how foggy his thoughts have grown, and a feeling of intense despair and hopelessness chills his body and soul. Dementors must be near. Quote, and as he reached the foot of the stairs and turned to his right, he saw a dreadful scene. The dark passage outside the courtrooms was packed with tall, black-hooded figures, their faces completely hidden, their ragged breathing the only sound in the place. The Dementors have been brought in to menace the Muggleborns being investigated by the Ministry, who sit shivering against the foul cold, covering their faces instinctively, Harry thinks, in an attempt to block the creature's dreaded kiss. Quote, the cold and the hopelessness and the despair of the place laid themselves upon Harry like a curse. Harry, his life already so full of sadness and loss, has always been uniquely susceptible to Dementors. As Lupin told him in Prisoner of Azkaban, quote, there are horrors in your past that the others don't have. But Harry found his strength then, in his fear and his friends and his father. That strength is with him still, and in many ways it's grown, expanded, just like his Patronus, from an initial soul-deep wisp, always present, but unformed, into a force that he can wield. And he tells himself to fight their crush. But he knows that casting a Patronus here would blow his cover. This is incredible. This is really a moment where you're like, oh man, Harry is, <sighs> this is just a, different, unbelievable. a different person now. And so Harry does something that once would have been unthinkable. He grits his teeth and he wills himself to walk forward, despite the darkness seeping into his bones. Quote, he forced himself to think of Hermione and Ron, who needed him. And those thoughts act as his Patronus, much like the forms of the loved ones lost will at book's end mm -hmm. when he turns the resurrection stone and they guide Harry into the forest. In Order of the Phoenix and the Lost Prophecy, Dumbledore says to Harry, quote, in the end, it mattered not that you could not close your mind. It was your heart that saved you. Here, Harry's heart and mind are one, his forceful love fueling his fortitude guarding him as he descends deeper into the beast. This scene of despair gets even more dire. Harry believes that the Dementors can sense him, sense the presence of a being with some hope intact. Then a door suddenly opens and the sound of screaming fills the corridor. This is blood chilling. Yeah. The person is pleading, saying, I'm half-blood, I'm half-blood, and that their father was a well-known wizard and broomstick designer. Just check, check. Then a familiar, sickly sweet voice answers, this is your final warning. If you struggle, you will be subjected to the Dementors' kiss. And this is happening over this person's desperate screams. And this is sickening. Yeah. Umbridge orders the defendant taken away, and she asks that the next be escorted in. It's Mary Catamull, the wife of the man whose identity Ron has assumed. Harry, his savior complex, fully and righteously engaged by the sight of Mary walking alone and terrified into this den of monsters, follows without thinking twice. From the book, he hated the sight of her walking alone into the dungeon. He finds himself in a smaller courtroom than the one he was tried in. 
the space is packed with Dementors. And in one corner on a raised platform, there's Umbridge with Yaxley and Hermione on either side of her. A silver cat, Umbridge's Patronus, Harry realizes, keeps the Dementors' depressive force at bay for the casters and her allies. From the book, that was for the accused to feel, not the accusers. Umbridge interrogates Mary, who terrified answers through tears, crying for her missing husband, whom her friends unknowingly kept away. She says of her children, they're frightened. They think I might not come home. Spare us, spat Yaxley. The brats of mudbloods do not stir our sympathies. Man. Harry, under cover of Mary's sobs, sidles up next to Hermione. I'm behind you, he whispers. And this startles Hermione, as he knew he would. But Umbridge and Yaxley are so engrossed in their sadistic enterprises that they don't even notice. Harry can tell that Umbridge's Patronus is as forceful as it is because its caster is so happy here. She loves this shit. Torturing others, depriving them of their rights and their humanity. Umbridge asks about Mary's wand, which was confiscated when she entered the building. Quote, could you please tell us from which witcher wizard you took that wand? Took? Sobbed Mrs. Catamaral. I didn't take it from anybody. I bought it when I was 11 years old. This last line is agony. Yeah. It, it, chose me. This is absolutely gutting. A sickening glimpse into the fate that awaits Muggleborns should Voldemort prevail. The fate that should await Hermione. It is also a corruption of everything that this story represents. Of everything that Harry holds so dear. The chance to find yourself and the place where you belong. The idea that a woman like Umbridge, that a corrosive body like Voldemort's puppet ministry, could revoke the power of this moment the life-altering affirmation of the wand choosing its wizard. And the bond forged therein is an assault on everything that Harry holds dear and is trying to protect. Umbridge laughs when she hears Mary's response, and when she leans forward to better soak in Mary's misery, Harry sees the locket. The locket! Right there, swinging from her neck. Of course she would wear it. Of course she would never let such a precious item out of her grasp for even a moment. Mm -hmm. Of course she would want to use it to bolster her own credentials, especially in this blood status heavy time. More on this in the seven. Hermione sees it too and finds the courage, despite her shaking hands, to ask about it. In Umbridge lies, saying that it's, quote, an old family heirloom and that the S is for Selwyn. Mm. She goes on to claim relation to the Selwyn's noted pureblood family. And Umbridge's falsehoods, uttered with such ease by the woman who once made Harry cut I must not tell lies into his own skin, stoke a fury in him. She bribed a petty criminal for this, and now she's using it to puff up her own false history as she ruins countless lives around her for history that they can't control, and that she, a monstrous blight upon humanity, has no right to deem worthy or unworthy in any case. And Harry, not even bothering to keep his wand concealed under his cloak, guided by his rage, forgetting his previous promise to just get Ron and Hermione out of here safely, stares the wrists in the face and accepts them. If one wants to fight the Dark Lord, there's no safe course of action. And regardless, he needs that locket. Yep. And regardless after that, Dolores needs to go. And so he acts, casting Stupefy against Umbridge and then the Death Eater Yaxley. Hermione, shocked, sees the Dementors closing in on Mrs. Cattermole, and Harry responds without thought, casting Expecto Patronum, sending forth his silver stag to scatter the creatures. Now consider this. His decision to curse Umbridge and Yaxley revealed that there was an intruder, but not who it was. His decision to cast his signature Patronus, a topic of conversation at his ministry hearing, leaves no doubt that it's him for anyone who's informed enough to study their prey with care. 
but that doesn't matter anymore. Getting out alive does. Getting out with a locket does. Saving Mary and the other poor souls being interrogated does. And his stag's power dwarfs Umbridge's Patronus. And as it saunters about, he tells Hermione, get the Horcrux, and goes to see Mrs. Cattermole, who is utterly confused by why her accuser, Runcorn, should be helping her escape. Hermione, thinking quickly, makes a double of the locket so that Umbridge won't realize it's missing when she wakes up. Unbelievably clutch moment from Hermione Granger. That is big. R.A.B. would be proud. After a plea from Harry for Mary to leave the country with her family, she and Harry and Mrs. Catterwell make for the door where, after a fumbling start, it's the only spell she's ever had trouble with. Bit unfortunate, really. Thanks, Harry. Great time for that, Harry. She manages to cast her Patronus. Her otter and Harry's stag scatter the Dementors from the book. It's been decided that you should all go home and go into hiding with your families, Harry told the waiting Muggleborns who were dazzled by the light of the Patronuses and still cowering slightly. Go abroad if you can. Just get well away from the ministry. That's the uh, new official position. This is vintage Harry. He could run. He could flee. He has what he came for, but it's not in his nature. He has to save people, and it's why we love him. They head toward the elevators, at which point Harry realizes that trundling into the atrium at the head of a crowd of accused people and two Patronuses is a really good way to get caught. Great way. Uh But before he can ponder what to do about this, the lift doors open and Ron, a.k.a. Mr. Catamull, step out. Reg, screamed Mrs. Catamull, and she threw herself into Ron's arms. Runcorn left me out. He attacked Umbridge and Yaxley, and he's told all of us to leave the country. I think we better do it, Reg. I really do. Let's hurry home and fetch the children. And why are you so wet? Water, says Ron. (laughs) Still got it, baby! (laughs) Ron tells them that Mad-Eye's missing eye was noticed, and the Ministry knows that there are intruders in the building. I reckon we've got five minutes, if that. So trouble on all sides, not great. And yet, Harry is achieving something so sincerely real here. He's found the lock. He's got Moody's eye. He knocked Umbridge and Yaxley out of commission. He found Ron and Hermione. He saved Mary. It's no exaggeration to say he saved her and he saved all these others too or is in the process of doing so. Mm-hmm. It's simultaneously totally in line with his character and of a piece with all his past heroics and part of a proud storytelling staple, the level up moment, a time-honored and necessary tradition in fantasy and science fiction. It's the moment when you realize the previously naive young proto-hero has processed their previous failures and grown past the growing pains and has become something else. When this scene is earned, it's an eye-popping shot of adrenaline, a feeling of hurtling forward into the story with newfound speed. Think of Luke Skywalker at the beginning of Return of the Jedi, suddenly able to manipulate Jabba's guards with the power of suggestion, or Daenerys unleashing Drogon, Dracarys, on the slave masters. The mission to the Ministry is a level-up moment for Harry. Hermione says, Harry, if we're trapped here, we won't be if we move fast, said Harry. He addressed the silent group behind them who were all gawping at him. Who's got wands? About half of them raise their hands. Okay, all of you who haven't got wands need to attach yourself to somebody who has. Before our eyes, almost before we realized it, we're looking at a very different Harry Potter. Aggressive in taking chances as they come to him, but not reckless, not impetuous anymore. He moves quickly, but not blindly. He doesn't need to be convinced to lead as he did in order. It's just instinctive. He just moves. And the ragtag group piles into two lifts and heads for the atrium. From the book, Harry's Patronus stood sentinel before the golden grills. Think of what that says about his power. This is a spell few grown wizards can work, and yet Harry can maintain it fully amid this level of stress and danger. It's incredible. A real fool. And when the doors open in the atrium, Harry can see that they're in trouble. Security forces are busily shutting down the fireplaces, cutting off their means of escape. 
Harry has always been, again, at his best, at the point of danger. And here, with innocent lives depending on his every move, depending on him to deliver them safely from danger in a situation where fighting can only be the last resort, because surely people will be hurt here. Harry shows how far he's come. Stop! Harry thundered, and the powerful voice of Runcorn echoed through the atrium. The wizard sealing the fireplaces froze. Harry, using every bit of information he's gleaned across a day, trusts his gut. Runcorn is powerful enough to try this with. He tells the Muggleborns, follow my lead. From the book, this lot need to leave before you seal the exits, said Harry with all the authority he could muster. We've been told to seal all the exits and not let anyone. Are you contradicting me? Harry blusters here. Would you like me to have your family tree examined like I had Dirk Cresswell's? And that does the trick because the Death Eaters and the Ministry are now organized around fear and domination. This creates an environment where those with power are simply at the mercy to those with just a little bit more power. They're in a place now where a whispered allegation can get you thrown in Azkaban, and this leaves them particularly vulnerable to this kind of dick-measuring bluff. But just as Harry's boasting about their pure blood, really working to seal it, the actual red shows up. Mary! Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Oh, boy. Ron swears loudly. Not exactly melting into the background there, and even the people working ministry security notice. What's going on? And then he actually shows up. Shit. All of the Muggleborns but Mary have escaped, and Harry has saved lives today. But now his life, their lives, are the ones in danger. And when the balding ministry wizard lifts his wand, Harry lays him out fist first. Muggle style. Great shit. (laughs) (laughs) Quote, he's been helping Muggleborns escape, Yaxley. Incredible last-ditch effort here from Harry, my boy. Yeah. But the other security wizards protest as one. And in the uproar, Ron pulls Mary up the fireplace to safety. Great look for Ron Weasley, my guy! (laughs) And one that leads to an iconic literal, my wife, from the real wedge. My wife! (laughs) (laughs) It's a great moment. As the real red shouts, drawing Yaxley's attention to the doubles, comprehension dawns for him. Yes. And then Harry grabs Hermione's hand and they shoot up the fireplace into the toilet where they meet Ron, who's trying to disentangle from Mary to convince her that he's not her real husband. And then they hear a sound and they see Yaxley emerge and Harry shouts, let's go. He grabs Hermione by the hand, Ron by the arm and turns on the spot. Quote, but something was wrong. Hermione's hand seemed to be slipping out of his grip. The typical suffocating force of apparition is stronger than ever. Harry feels that it might truly claim them. Quote, he could not breathe or see. And the only solid things in the world were Ron's arm and Hermione's fingers, which were slowly slipping away. And then Harry quickly sees the door of 12 Grimald Place. Quote, but before he could draw breath, certainly before he can eat a steak and kidney pie, there was a scream and a flash of purple light. He feels Hermione's hand suddenly as strong as a vice and then is lost to the darkness. Chapter 14, The Thief. Harry, disoriented, finds himself staring up at the forest canopy, filtered sunlight streaming down upon him. He wonders for a moment if they're in the forbidden forest, and in quote, his heart leapt at the thought of sneaking through the trees to Hagrid's hut. Mm -hmm. This daydream is quickly shattered by a twitch and a groan from Mm -hmm. Ron. Hermione, by Ron's side already, Harry joins her. And from the book, all other concerns fled Harry's mind, for blood drenched the whole of Ron's left side and his face stood out grayish-white against the leaf-strewn earth. Harry asks what happened. Splinched, Hermione says, and Harry watches, quote, horrified as Hermione tears open Ron's shirt to reveal the source of the blood, a gouged-out chunk of flesh as though scooped cleanly away. 
Harry's inside squirm at the sight, but Hermione demands his focus, telling him to fetch the essence of Dittany from her bag. He's searching to no avail when her cry of quickly calls him to his senses, expressing clear urgency that this is a dire situation. Harry summons the substance. Unstopper it for me, Harry, she says. My hands are shaking. This is a really touching moment. Yeah. Emotional moment where we can see Hermione's distress. She loves Ron. And here he rests bleeding out, his life literally in her hands. And she's terrified of losing him. But also, steadfast in her resolve to save him. When she pours three drops of the potion onto his wound, greenish smoke billows, and under it, the bleeding stops. From the book, the wound now looked several days old, new skin stretched over what had just been open flesh. She stopped the worst of it and says that there are other ways, other magic, that might be able to heal him further. Quote, but I daren't try in case I do them wrong and cause more damage. He's lost so much blood already. Harry asks how Ron got hurt, and then where they are. Why they're in the woods somewhere and not back at 12 Grimmauld Place. And Hermione looks close to tears as she begins to answer. Harry, I don't think we're going to be able to go back there, she tells him, adding that he actually grabbed a hold of her as they were disapparating, and that he was still holding on when they arrived at Grimmauld Place, forcing her to bring the trio here to these woods instead. And Harry is shocked and confused. Yaxley's not with them now. Can he really be at Grimmauld Place? Hermione explains. I forced him to let go with a revulsion jinx, she says, but I'd already taken him inside the Fidelius Charms protection. Since Dumbledore died, we're secret keepers. So I've given him the secret, haven't I? Harry knows that she's right, and it's a devastating blow. If Yaxley is in the house, they can never return. Yes. And yes, Harry has always had complicated feelings about the place, given its connection to Sirius and Sirius's misery. And yes, our friends already certainly consider the security of the old order headquarters a bit dodgy, given what they think is Snape's shift to Voldemort's side. But no less than Moody installed the house's anti-Snape jinxes. And since the first night that they spent together in the drawing room, unsure if the protections would hold, they've since spent a month there. So much time that they've settled into bedrooms. The fact that the watching Death Eaters had never been able to enter gave our friends confidence in the security. And what's more, the relationship with creatures meaningfully changed following his locket reveal and their kindness. All of which is to say, 12 Grimmauld Place has not only served as a highly effective hideout, it's become something like a home, a refuge from the beast. And with Grimmauld Place now blown, our friend's last dependable refuge is gone. To say nothing of the heartache of Sirius's ancestral home, no matter how he felt about it, still his home, falling into enemy hands. And then there's Creature. Quote, with a twinge of regret that had nothing to do with food, Harry imagined the house elf busying himself over the steak and kidney pie that Harry, Ron, and Hermione would never eat. Devastating. Hermione is crestfallen, thinking she let Harry down. She tries to apologize. Don't be stupid. It wasn't your fault. If anything, it was mine, Harry says. And to her horror, he takes out Moody's eye and tells her how he found it. Obviously, he couldn't leave it like that. Quote, but that's how they knew there were intruders. And just then, Ronsters, Harry and Hermione, fill him in on where they are and how they got here. They're in the woods where the Quidditch World Cup took place, the first enclosed and covered spot Hermione thought of. Harry can't help but think of the fight at the cafe and how quickly the Death Eaters found them after they disapparated from the borough. The last time they went to the first place Hermione thought of. Have they again unwittingly fallen into the enemy's jaws? And he wonders how the Death Eaters found them, how'd they do it from the book. Had it been legitimacy, did Voldemort or his henchmen know, even now, where Hermione had taken them. We'll learn in time that it's the taboo on Voldemort's name 
until they speak it, they'll be safe. But they don't know this. And clearly experiencing the same concern as Harry, Ron asks if they should keep moving. When Harry sizes up his friend, it's clear that there's just no way Ron can travel right now, magically or otherwise. He can't even sit up. Let's stay here for now, he says, much to Hermione's relief. You can't keep Hermione Jean Granger down for long. No, you can't, world. She springs back into action, casting protective spells all around their campsite. Harry spotting, quote, little disturbances in the surrounding air as she goes. That's a cool moment, a cool mm-hmm. description of how the magic actually looks viscerally. Salvio Hexia, Protego Totalum, Repello Muggletum, Mufliato. You could get out the tent, Harry. And he's like, tent? In the bag. Of course. Harry recognizes it once he summons it from the smell of cats. We've all been there, Harry. It's Perkins's tent, which they slept in at the Quidditch World Cup. And then Hermione casts an erecto at the tent, and she'll do so at Ron once he's feeling better. And then finishes the last protective measures that she knows, which are quite varied. Our girl really prepared for life on the road. The only thing they don't have is food. She tells them, quote, at the very least, we should know they're coming. And then right as she's about to say Voldemort's name, Ron cuts her off. I'm sorry, but it feels like a a jinx or something. Can't we call him you-know-who, please? Ron's sudden fear Mm -hmm. is quite well-timed, given that the complete utterance of Voldemort's name would draw foes to their campsite in an instant because of the taboo that we will later learn about. But Harry begins to push back, reminding Ron of Dumbledore's fear of a name mantra. Quote, in case you hadn't noticed, mate, calling you-know-who by his name didn't do Dumbledore much good in the end. Yikes. It's fucking savage. Wow. Wow. <laughs> just just show you know who some respect, will you? And Harry is obviously outraged by the sentiment, but Hermione talks him down with a look, not to lecture Ron while he's too weak to even move. And instead of pressing the point, Harry and Hermione hoist Ron into the tent where he all but collapses in agony. And then Hermione makes tea, which restores Harry the way that fire whiskey did. And over their cup of the trio decompress, their minds turning to their completed mission and the people they saved. What do you reckon happened to the catamoles, Ron asks. And Hermione says that hopefully they listened to Harry and managed with their children to flee the country. Ron very briefly shits on Reg in hilariously ruthless fashion by saying, I didn't get the feeling Reg Catamole was all that quick-witted, though, the way everyone was talking to me when I was him. <laughs> very tough stuff. <laughs> Extremely tough stuff. To say about a guy who's, like, fleeing the country for his life right now. (laughs) Brutal. But then Ron pivots considerably here, closing very touchingly by earnestly, sincerely wishing that the Catamoles manage to get to safety. If they both end up in Azkaban because of us, he says. And at this moment, Harry looks at Hermione, ready to ask if Mary's lack of a wand would have prevented her from traveling via side-along apparition. But the query, quote, died in his throat. Hermione was watching Ron fret over the fate of the catamoles, and there was such tenderness in her expression that Harry felt almost as if he had surprised her in the act of kissing him. This is another agonizing moment, much like Harry waking up to see Ron and Hermione huddled in a way that signals to him that they had fallen asleep holding hands, and the loneliness that that brings out in Harry. These three are alone in the world, more so now than ever cast aside from even the pure-blood palace that they used to loathe. They have nothing but each other and their determination. A moment like this fills our hearts because of what it says about the blossoming love between Ron and Hermione, but it also crushes us because of how it casts Harry aside. Harry, Ron, and Hermione are united against the world, but in an instance like this, we and Harry are reminded that there are parts within the whole 
private moments and intrusions on them. Harry, eager to remind Hermione of his presence and confident once again that his friends are, at least for the moment, safe and whole, asks about the locket. So have you got it? Hermione, about the sharpest tack there is, is so caught up in her feelings for Ron in this moment that she actually doesn't realize what Harry's talking about at first. What did we just go through all that for? The locket. Where's the locket? Harry repeats. And Ron is elated. You got it? Shouted Ron, raising himself a little higher on his pillows. No one tells me anything. Blimey, you could have mentioned it. She pulls the horcrux, egg-sized and inlaid with green stones in the shape of Slytherin's S out of her robes and hands it to Ron, who asks, very important question. Uh Are we sure this is still a horcrux? Could someone have destroyed it since Creature had it? Hermione says that surely there'd be some sign of damage if the horcrux had been destroyed. And Harry thinks of the ruined state of Tom Riddle's diary after he stabbed it with the basilisk fang. And, quote, how the stone in the horcrux ring had been cracked open when Dumbledore destroyed it. Harry agrees with her and with Creature. They'll have to find a way to get inside. Holding the locket, holding a shard of Voldemort's soul, Harry can feel the malevolent power coursing inside of it. And though he doesn't recognize it, calling to its cousin within him, and he's momentarily overcome with, quote, a violent urge to fling the locket from him. It's incredible to consider this. He wants to rid himself of the very thing he doesn't know is inside of him. He's repulsed by that which has so defined his life. Gathering his wits, Harry tries to pry the locket open. Then Hermione and Ron give it a go. But the locket will not give up the prize. Ron, clutching it in his hand, says, can you feel it, though? And Harry thinks, yes, he can. Quote, was it his own blood pulsing through his veins that he could feel, or was it something beating inside the locket like a tiny metal heart? Well, of course, the answer is both. Such is the brilliance of the question and the agony of the reveal to come, fully destroying Voldemort, fully traveling into the belly of that particular beast, will mean destroying a part of himself. Here Hermione asks what they should do with it. And Harry says simply, keep it safe until they can figure out the best way to destroy it. And, quote, little though he wanted to, he hung the chain around his own neck, dropping the locket out of sight beneath his robes, where it rested against his chest beside the pouch Hagrid had given him. The pouch where Harry keeps that which is most precious to him. Incredible. He declares that they should keep watch and turn, and he and Hermione alternate, given that Ron turned green when he tried to sit up. The sneakoscope that Hermione bought Harry for his birthday is by their side. And that night, as Harry keeps watch alone, their patch of wood having gone undisturbed by the passersby all day, Harry stares into the darkness, stomach rumbling, and thinks about all they've done and all that's left to do. Harry imagined that he feels some sort of satisfaction upon swiping the Horcrux from Umbridge, but instead, all he can think about is how many Horcruxes are still out there, how little they know about what they are or where to find them, and how they still don't know how to destroy the one that they already have. Quote, it was as though he had been hurtling toward this point for weeks, months, maybe even years. But now he had come to an abrupt halt, run out of road. In the darkness of the forest at night, Harry feels the heartbeat of the locket, alive, out of sync with his own, the cold metal refusing to steal heat from his body, and his fears bubble up in the night, nameless and foreboding. He thinks of his collision course with Voldemort and the words of the prophecy by which Dumbledore told him not to set such store, but he cannot push these thoughts from his mind. Quote, Ron and Hermione, now talking softly behind him in the tent, could walk away if they wanted to. He could not. And it seemed to Harry as he sat there trying to master his own fear and exhaustion that the horcrux against his chest was ticking away the time he had left. 
This is another example of what we've been talking about throughout this book, Mm -hmm. these moments of introspection for Harry, where he is aware of his circumstances and the things around him in a way that he just had not been before. The Horcrux is working on him already, corrupting his mind and his soul. But like a dementor preying on one's despair or a boggard on one's fears, it calls upon that which is already there. On some level, Harry believes these things. On some level, he feels this alone. This trapped in the depths of an inescapable hell that's built only for him. And his scar begins to prickle as he tries to push these thoughts from his mind. And more fears that he's been repressing or that he simply didn't have time to think about come to the fore. He thinks about poor Creature. The relationship had just recently and tenuously mended. Would Creature think that Harry abandoned him? Would he tell the Death Eaters what he knows? Would the Death Eaters torture the elf for knowledge? There's such empathy here from Harry, but also fear. He and Hermione have already ruled out summoning the elf in case someone from the ministry came to. The pain in Harry's scar intensifies, and his thoughts are wandering now. He thinks of how right Lupin was to say they'd be encountering magic they'd never seen and laments Dumbledore's secrecy. From the book, why hadn't Dumbledore explained more? Had he thought there would be time? We know the answer is no, that Dumbledore knew he was going to die. Harry doesn't have that clarity, and so he begins to think of Nicholas Flamel and his hundreds of years, and then the astronomy tower and Snape, quote, the sleeping snake, which of course is really hairy in the Horcrux within, and Dumbledore thrown clear of the tower, his body falling, and suddenly Harry's having another vision. Give it to me, Grigorovich, says that familiar high, cold voice, and he sees from the Dark Lord's perspective himself torturing Grigorovich, who's suspended upside down in the air. Grigorovich insists that whatever it is, the Elder Wand, we will soon discover, he no longer has it. It was many years ago, stolen from me. Do not lie to Lord Voldemort. Grigorovich, he knows. He always knows. And then the perspective shifts. From within the Dark Lord's mind, Harry experiences Voldemort using legitimacy to see into Grigorovich's recollections, where he sees the wand maker rushing down a hallway, lantern held aloft. Grigorovich bursts into what appears to be a workshop and, quote, there on the window ledge sat perched like a giant bird, a young man with golden hair. Mm. In the split second that the lantern's light illuminated him, Harry saw the delight upon his handsome face. Then the intruder shot a stunning spell from his wand and jumped neatly back out of the window with a crow of laughter. Who was this thief? Voldemort wants to know, but Gorovich does not know who it was. We will soon. It's Grindelwald stealing the Elder Wand. Grindelwald in his hunt for the Hallows. The Dark Lord, however, is out of patience. Harry sees that trademark flash of green light, and Grigorovich is no more. Harry wakes, not doing the best job keeping watch, just for the record. He tries to pass it off as a dream when Hermione comes out. Dozed off, sorry, he says. But Hermione isn't falling for it, and what's more, she's alarmed. She's seen this before and knows, despite his denials, that Harry is not fighting the return of his mental portal with Voldemort, not working to close his mind in the way that Dumbledore wanted. I know it was your scar, she says. I can tell by the look on your face. You were looking into Vol— Don't say his name, Ron shrieks, unknowingly saving them once again from the taboo. Harry's curiosity over what he just witnessed ultimately overpowers his desire to deny— what happened, and fend off a lecture. He tells Hermione that he didn't mean for it to happen and then tries to share with them the details of what he saw through Voldemort's eyes as the Dark Lord penetrated the Wandmaker's mind. But Hermione won't indulge. This is savage, but in a good way. I think I'd better take over the watch if you're so tired you're falling asleep, she says. All right, it's fair. It's honestly a <laughs> so very, <good>. very fair point. <laughs> oh, my God. Inside the tent. 
Ron asks Harry, all right, tell me more. And out of earshot of Hermione, he does. None of this makes sense to Harry, however. If Voldemort wants Grigorovich to make him a new wand that can beat Harry's, why was Grigorovich tied up, tortured? Why did Voldemort kill him? Why didn't Voldemort mention the twin cores of his and Harry's wands? Harry recalls that something has been stolen and the young thief he saw in Grigorovich's mind. I, I think I've seen him somewhere, Harry says to Ron, unable to currently at this moment pair the visual from this vision with the photo of Dumbledore and a young Grindelwald that he saw earlier today in Rita's book, noting only that whatever the thief stole must have been small. And of course, a wand would not draw Harry's notice in this memory because they're in a wand shop. That reveal of Grindelwald's identity is chapters away. The Elder Wand reveal is too. All Harry has here on a night that should be a massive celebration of a massive achievement is more questions, including a new one from Ron. Could Voldemort be trying to make another Horcrux? Quote, didn't Hermione say he had pushed his soul to the limit already, Harry asks? Yeah, Ron says, but maybe he doesn't know that. And this is a keen insight from Ron. While this isn't what Voldemort is trying to do, it does show an advanced understanding of one of Voldemort's weaknesses. He has sacrificed so much of his humanity that he can't even feel the parts that are being destroyed. And thus, will not know until the Gringotts infiltration reveals it to him that Harry is destroying his horcruxes. Here, Harry is as stumped about what Voldemort is after as he is about how to destroy those horcruxes. Quote, what was Voldemort trying to find? Why, with the Ministry of Magic and the Wizarding World at his feet, was he far away, intent on the pursuit of an object that Grigorovich had once owned and which had been stolen by the unknown thief? And who is this thief? Harry thinks about his face. Quote, Mary Wilde. There was a Fred and George's air of triumphant trickery about him. It is jarring and alarming to consider mm-hmm. the boy who would go on to become one of the most evil sorcerers of all time, described in this way. Mary alighted by his own brilliance, alive with the power of the wand that we'll later learn he had just stolen. Harry's thoughts dwell on him as Ron's snores fill the tent. Quote, it was the merry-faced thief who was in danger now. Jason? Yes? Quickly in my bag. There's a small bottle labeled Essence of Restricted Section. Ooh. Unstopper it for me and then toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about injury and illness in the wizarding world. Constructing a cohesive fictional world requires more than just the grand elevator pitch ideas, the magic, the school, the four distinct houses. To invent something truly memorable and internally consistent involves thinking about the little things too and how life actually works under that creative umbrella. The Rowling so successfully incorporates these details of her wizarding world as part of what makes these stories so special. She put thought into how magic would affect a wizard's quotidian existence, what manifests in everything from the chores at the burrow to the diverse methods of travel and everything in between. Magic isn't just for the complex spells and fireworks. It's for the mundane aspects of life as well. And as Rowling imagined her world, the notion of illness came up early in the process. She writes on Pottermore about all the related questions she had to ponder. Quote, did wizards catch colds? Could they cure illness that baffled muggles? Were there disabled wizards? What were the limits of wizarding medicine or could it fix anything? She says she decided early on that wizards could not truly bring back the dead with magic, but that decision led to only more questions. 
quote, I then had to decide what might kill a wizard, what kind of illnesses they could catch, what injuries they might sustain, and which of the last two could be cured. Obviously, as Ron learns firsthand in this section with his plinching-induced weakness, injuries induced by magic can cause quite a large amount of lasting harm. The wizarding world, in fact, is full of potential for physical damage, even at Hogwarts, the oft-touted safest place. Spells and curses can cause harm, and potions can cause harm, and magical plants like Devil's Snare can cause harm, and a whole host of different magical creatures can cause harm, too. We've talked before about how a werewolf attack leaves irreversible scarring on a victim, and that's just one example of the wide variety. Rowling writes that she decided to differentiate between mundane injuries and magical injuries, and that magical folk could cure the former easily, but not the latter. This relationship held true across all methods of injury. It means that Madame Pomfrey could fix the flu with pepper-up potion, mm. but something like dragon pox isn't so effortless. Dragon pox killing lots of wizards and Very witches tough. throughout history. Very I wish we had pepper-up for the flu, though. That would be great. It means that a wizard would, quote, comfortably survive a scorpion sting that might kill a muggle, whereas he might die if bitten by a venomous tentacula. And it means that broken bones are quickly, if painfully mended, as Harry learns several times over, shouts to Skelligrow, while physical damage from backfiring or experimental magic could be long-lasting or even life-threatening. The same concept holds true with non-physical injuries, too, as we see at St. Mungo's with Gilderoy Lockhart and Neville's poor parents, whose brains were permanently damaged, in Gilderoy's case, by magic gone wrong, or dark magic wielded with a vindictive purpose for the Longbottoms. Witches and wizards also suffer from conditions that muggles do not, like lycanthropy. Remember from the werewolf restricted section at the end of our prince bundle that muggles who are attacked die before transforming, and malediction, which we'll learn much more about in the upcoming Fantastic Beasts sequel. All in all, Rowling writes, quote, While wizards have an enviable head start over the rest of us in dealing with the flu and all manner of serious injuries, they have to deal with the problems that the rest of us never face, including splinching. Poor Ron and poor Harry and Hermione, who will soon have to deal with his growing grouchiness as the trio's camping commences. Jason? Yeah. I bet it's sneaked up here from experimental podcasts. That's right. They're so careless. Remember that poisonous duck? Who could forget? Not to be confused with hot duck. Hot mandarin duck. <laughs> After we reminisce, let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, uh. by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Hallows chapters 12 through 14. Seven remains the most powerfully magical number. You go first. Number one, the moment when Hermione duplicates the locket so as not to tip off Umbridge to its theft isn't just another entry in the Hermione's dope as fuck pantheon. It's a foreshadowing for the return of the Gemino spell later in the book. When our pals infiltrate the Lestrange vault at Gringotts, the Gemino curse is paired with flagrante to devastating effect. Everything they touch in the vault will multiply and burn, crushing them under the weight of the treasure and melting their flesh. Yikes. <laughs> Number two. Speaking of Umbridge, one might wonder how Umbridge was able to conjure Patronus while wearing the Horcrux locket, given Harry's inability to do so while wearing the locket coming up in Chapter 15. In a 2007 Bloomsbury chat, Rowling provided an answer. Quote, because she's a very nasty piece of work. She has an affinity for this horrible object, which would help her rather than hinder her. Fascinating. Number three. One more umbrage note. As usual, this hag provides plenty of material in addition to her viciousness. We discussed earlier how her saying... There are few pure blood families to whom I am not related, enraged Harry, who thinks she's using a locket to, quote, bolster her own pure blood credentials. But recall 
that although she could conceivably be related to some pure blood folks, as we discussed in the Umbridge restricted section in our order pods, she was actually half blood and hid her mother's muggleness from everyone in the Wizarding World. Number four. When our trio discusses Snape's assumption of the headmaster's office, Harry thinks that Snape was now, quote, in triumphant possession of Dumbledore's collection of delicate silver magical instruments, the stone pensive, the sorting hat, and, unless it had been moved elsewhere, the sword of Gryffindor. Ding, ding, ding! The sword's location, and a secret swapping, is about to become a massive plot point, and this line, on the heels of the sword appearing as one of Dumbledore's bequests to Harry in his will is another nice reminder of its connection to Dumbledore, Harry, and Snape and impending importance in the story. Number five, RIP to the homie Dirk Cresswell, who first graced our pages in connection to Horace Slughorn and the Slug Club, and who, after populating these chapters, will emerge again on the run with Dean, Ted, Griphook, and Gornuck. Regrettably, when a group of snatchers catches this quintet, Cresswell, Ted, and Gornuck are murdered. Only Dean and Griphook escape, eventually uniting with Harry at Malfoy Manor. Number six. As outlined, Harry is incredibly confused following the vision of Voldemort murdering Gregorovich, in part because, as he thinks at one point, quote, and yet he had killed him apparently without asking him a single question about wand lore. This specific mention of wand lore, this specific curiosity, amplifies Harry's bewilderment in the moment, but in retrospect, it works wonderfully as a hint to readers. Voldemort has neither the understanding of nor care for wand lore, which will prove to be a main reason behind his ultimate downfall. Number seven. Let's talk about the spells that Hermione uses to secure their campsite. They're really cool. Salvio, Hexia, deflects incoming hexes. Mm. Protego Totalum defends the area. Repella Muggleton is that muggle repellent. Keeps muggles away. They just don't want to go to that area. Muffliato, we know, is one of the Half-Blood Prince's inventions, and that's the sound muffling spell. And Cave Inimicum is like a burglar alarm. It's an intrusion warning. And that's the one that Hermione says. Well, at least I know that this one will work. And Erecto is to help Ron get it out. Erecto is is to make sure that Ron, who has lost a lot of blood, has blood where he needs it. (laughs) Get that chubby one up. Get his little red-haired man to stand up straight and at attention. Little Ron. Mal, it's the only spell she ever has trouble with. Erecto. (laughs) Bit unfortunate, really, but not enough to keep them from claiming another victory. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea who captivated us the most, and today we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup, too. Our trio of heroes. Erecto! (laughs) Great stuff from all of them. We are not going to repeat every single point, obviously, but some of the highlights. Look, together, they infiltrated the Ministry of Magic, and at the end of the day, they did get the Horcrux. They got the locket. They did it. Pretty incredible. All of their skills were on display. Ron, you can't underrate the fact that he went to a Death Eater's office and toiled there for an amount of time. That must have been nerve-wracking. And then the compassion that he shows after the fact yes. for this family, are they okay? Really beautiful. And we we see how Hermione is completely in love with him. Right. Hermione's incredible plans 
in the ministry. The fact that she on the spot was like, we have to double this locket so they don't know what we have done. The fact that she had to sit there and take notes while she's watching what ostensibly could have been her fate unfold in front of her. And again, just the prep on her part, everything in the back, a tent. Phineas's portrait is with them. And then Harry Potter really showing how far he's come as a leader and a hero in those moments when everything is threatening to come apart. And just by the force of his own courage and his will to take decisive action, he holds it all together. And not just in the sense that he saves them and gets the locket, but he saves a whole bunch of people too. The Dementor Patronus moment is incredible. Walking through the Dementors yeah. with just his love for Hermione and Ron guiding him is a astonishing really moment. Really incredible. Shouts to the trio. Love Great it. work, guys. Nothing but happy times ahead for you. It'll be fine. Misery awaits. Oh, my God. Well, friends, if you need us, we'll be reading Armando Dippet, Master or Moron, alongside two of our favorite masters, Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you'll join us again next time when we will be discussing chapters 15 through 17 of Deathly Hallows. Those are doozies. Big ones. Big ones, baby. Until then, remember, you didn't take binge mode from anybody. It chose you. No, let's stay here. Okay. Salvio hexia, protego totalum, ropello muggletum, muffliato, cave inimicum, hardus woodus, <laughs> erecto. <laughs> Think of baseballum. <laughs> Find us clitorium. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>